Amen. All right. James is an interesting book. Uh, A lot of people, if you're not careful, a lot of people begin to get tripped up with the book of James. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) James is known in some circles as the Proverbs of the New Testament. (coughs) And the reason for that is he deals with a lot of uh, and the, the style of the writing that he does, and of course all of this given to him by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, very similarly parallels the way that even the book of Proverbs was written by way of laying out uh, wisdom and truth um, and uh, the way that it's written, the style that it is written in. And so a lot of people refer to that. There's a great influence of the truths that he's writing about here uh, from both the Old Testament uh, especially the books of wisdom uh, from the Old Testament, uh, and also a great influence. You can see a lot of influence here from um, the Sermon on the Mount that's being reiterated. And again, uh, of course, the Holy Spirit is giving him exactly the words to write here, uh, but it seems like it's the purpose of the Holy Spirit in this book to kind of bring some of these things back to light by way of a, a review or at least uh, in dealing with some new truth, some New Testament truth, in the same manner, in the same method as some Old Testament truth as well. And so there's a lot of similarities, a lot of parallels uh, between the book of James and uh, the teaching, the principles of the Sermon on the Mount. You'll find a lot of parallels there. And uh, if you look at the style, the way that it's written and put together, uh, you'll find there's a lot of similarities to the way that uh, the books of wisdom in the Old Testament would be uh, Proverbs, <coughs> excuse me, Ecclesiastes, uh, some of those books uh, dealing with the issue of wisdom. And uh, there's three basic divisions. It's a fairly short book. Um, it's not, it's not uh, really long at all. It's only got five chapters in it. Uh, but it's easily divided into three sections. James hits a, a whole gambit of truth, and so it makes it a little more difficult to try to outline it. Uh, but I think there's, there's three main sections that you can still kind of categorize everything into. The first one is in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And uh, we would call this uh, portion of of this letter um, the test of genuine faith. The test of genuine faith. And it's going to deal with uh, some of the qualities, some of the characteristics of real faith. And uh, so he he addresses that in the first part of this uh, book. Uh, As we get to chapter uh, 1, verse 19, all the way through the beginning of chapter 5, so the vast majority of the book, is going to deal with the characteristics of genuine faith. The characteristics. What does it look like? Uh, What should it look like? And uh, so he's going to deal with that. And then he's going to deal with, um, the rest of the book is going to be dealing with the triumph of genuine faith. uh, How it triumphs in the Christian life. And so we want to take a minute to look at some of these things in a little better detail. If you will, take your Bibles, turn to James chapter number 1. We're going to look at a few uh, verses here. Um, but he's going to deal with, uh, in the testing of our faith, he's going to deal with two, two topics. He's going to deal with trials that come into our life, and he's going to deal with temptations that come into our life. And this is, these two things are the things that oftentimes will test whether our faith is genuine or not. The trials that come our way and how we respond to those, and the temptations that come our way and how we respond to those. And so, um, uh, look with me, if you will, in chapter 1, in verse number 1, James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes <coughs> which are scattered abroad. This is very important to know that this was 
written primarily to the Hebrews, the Christian Hebrews who had been scattered abroad. Now, this gives us some idea as to what uh, was going on during this time period because the reason that the early church Christians were scattered abroad was what? Anybody remember? What would cause the group of Christians in Jerusalem to scatter abroad? Persecution. Okay, so there's great persecution coming here. So when James addresses this first test of their faith as being the trials, understand what they're going through in the context that he's writing this in. Um, these folks are going through an awful lot. Uh, I was just downstairs and uh, uh, we was talking about the, the fact that the Parsons air conditioner has been broken now for a few weeks and we got a price to get it fixed. And it was real expensive and I told, the, told Brother uh, uh, Wayne I'd rather just get a window unit for this season and get through the, the season and not have to put one in there because it's very expensive. And one of the folks down there said, well, as long as you're not suffering. <laughs> and I'm like, well, it's uncomfortable, but we are a long way from suffering, really, if you think about it. Uh, because the truth is, when we put what we consider to be persecution or what we consider to be suffering alongside of what these people were going through, the truth is, we have not yet even begun to suffer. We have, we have maybe been inconvenienced. We have been uncomfortable. Uh, we maybe have been disappointed, maybe frustrated. But very few of us have gotten to the point where for our faith, we have suffered. And I think all of us can understand what suffering is. A lot of us have gone through physical problems, and certainly there is suffering in physical problems. But to suffer for your faith is what these folks are going through. And so James addresses this. He's talking to the twelve tribes, so these are, these are specifically pointed to the, the Hebrew Christians that uh, were scattered abroad because of the persecution. Now, just because he wrote to the Hebrews, I, I've asked... Uh, I went to some people here, uh, some preacher friends of mine, uh, back about a year ago to ask them some questions on something I had a question on in the book of James specifically. And uh, their answer to me was, well, you've got to remember it's written to the Jews, as if to say you don't need to really worry about that truth because it wasn't written to you. But the truth is the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, might be perfect, may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. So every part of the Scripture is applicable. Even though it was written to the Hebrews, don't discount it. Don't say, well, that doesn't apply to me. Because the truth that is found in James applies to every one of us. And uh, certainly is applicable. So let's take a look here. Verse number 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. What a peculiar statement to start with. To count it all joy, to, to, to be uh, excited about the fact, or maybe not excited about, but, but to take joy in the fact that they were going through these tribulations, this suffering. And uh, the reason James said this is because the trying of your faith worketh patience. And um, so the trial of, of genuine faith is this. When the trial comes, according to what James is writing here, Rather than becoming frustrated and discouraged and cast down from it, we ought to be able to rejoice in it because we know a few things. We know, first of all, that it will produce maturity in the Christian life. This trying of our faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Now, again, not talking here about 
sinless perfection, but dealing with the issue of maturity. So genuine faith in the face of trials is something we can look at, and even though we don't enjoy it, we can say, boy, I'm thankful for that because it is maturing me. And it ought to mature us spiritually. If, if the trying of our faith does not mature us spiritually, then our faith is not genuine in this area. It's very important that our faith needs to be such that we can rejoice in the trials because we understand that it produces maturity. Secondly, it produces endurance. It produces endurance. He says, knowing this, verse number 3, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. In other words, it doesn't come all at one time. It's, it's a process. And he says, let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect in entire, wanting nothing. Endure it. Allow it to take its effect on our lives. Um, this is the test of genuine faith. When trials come our way, how do we respond? Are we rejoicing in them? Are we looking at what we can learn from them? Are we running to Scripture and seeking for God's strength through the trial to, to mature us and to strengthen our faith and to help us be more of what we should be? That's what genuine faith is all about. And uh, then we find that it produces a dependence upon God, a stronger dependence upon God. And uh, look what it says here in verse number 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of what? Of God. So where, where, do, we get, where do we get this, uh, uh, this, this source to overcome this or to endure this trial and to allow it to have its perfect work in us? We, we get it through God's enablement. He enables us. And the Bible says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. So we need to express our dependence upon him. These trials should work that in us. Uh, a greater dependence upon him. And I don't know if you've had this happen in your life or not before. I have had this happen so many times in my life, and I look at it and I think every time it happens, I think, Lord, uh, you know, it wasn't pleasant to go through, but I'm thankful it happened. Because I don't know how many times God takes me through something where I have become so self-sufficient in that area of my life. In other words, I felt like, Lord, I can handle this part of my life. Uh, and, and we don't say it that way. We don't go out of our way to say it, but we don't put our dependence on Him either. And in doing so, we are basically saying, Lord, I can handle this part of my life. I, I, I For years, uh, you know, I, I've talked about the fact that I am... Somebody asked me even this week, well, what kind of Baptist church are you? I said, we're an independent Baptist. But I would rather say we are a dependent Baptist church. Because the truth is, we are absolutely dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we need to put all of our dependency upon Him. And I think in our lives, sometimes, if we're not careful, while we do not say this, in our actions we express this, that we are able to get through this part of our life. And Lord, You can, you can take a break for a little bit. I got this. I'll call You when I need You is the kind of mentality we have. When I get in that really bad part of life, then, Lord, I'll cry out to You. Why don't we cry out to Him every day? Lord, I can't make it through the day without You. The psalmist talked about the fact that the statutes and the counsels of God's Word were His life. In fact, he talks in some places in Psalm 119 that if it were not for those, he would not even be able to live without them. Oh, that we would have such a dependency upon the truth of God's Word. And so it gives us a, this, this genuine faith produces a dependence upon God in two ways. Number one, a dependence upon God 
for Him to provide the wisdom that is necessary to get through the problem. A dependence upon God to have the wisdom that is necessary to get through the problem. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, which giveth to all men liberally, and it braideth not. And then secondly, to give us the strength and enablement to endure through the trial. Look what it says in verse number 6. But let him ask in faith, look at this, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea that is driven by the wind, tossed and tossed. For let not a man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. <coughs> so we're not to waver in this faith. We're to be strengthened by it. We're to depend upon God to enable us to endure the trial. So James starts off with talking about trials. And then he gets into the issue of temptations. We get down. Let's uh, go ahead and for sake of time uh, to verse number 12. The second test of faith that he gives here in chapter 1 is that of temptation. The Bible says in verse 12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So, let me ask you a question here, because I had somebody ask me this here a few months ago. It says... The Bible says in some places that that God tempted such and such. In the issue, in the context of it, was that he was he was putting to the test someone. But notice when James talks about the temptation, he's not talking about the testing of God. Look in verse number twelve. It says, "Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord promised them that love him." Let no man say when he is tempted, "I am tempted of God." For God cannot be tempted with evil. So he's speaking here of evil temptation, not just the generic sense of temptation in the way of testing or proving our faith, uh, but in the sense of tempted to do evil. God does not do this. So the, the, the thing that we need to understand when it comes to testing of our genuine faith is in the area of temptation, we need to understand that it does not come from God. It does not come from the one that the Bible says in verse number 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from where? From above. And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So we don't get evil temptation from God. I I think there's so many times I've heard people blame God for their bitterness. God let this happen to me and I'm bitter because of it. Well, God didn't tempt them in that manner. Satan tempted them towards that bitterness. Very important that uh, we understand this truth, that God does not tempt for evil. He gives every good gift. And this is a trying of our faith. If our faith is genuine, then when those temptations come, we'll recognize it's certainly not coming from God, but it is coming from Satan. And then I want you to notice this in verse number 14. It says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And so he gives the progression here. Temptation, uh, if we don't deal with it at that level, it will turn to uh, an expression of our lusts. 
if the lust is not dealt with. And by the way, when we talk about lust in this sense, it's not always talking about sensual lust or sexual lust, but more along the lines of the lust of the flesh, the idea of uh, the, the body or the mind craving for things that are of a worldly or an ungodly nature. Uh, and so if we don't deal with the temptation early on, it allows the lust to take hold. And if we don't deal with the lust at a certain point, it leads to sin. And if we don't deal with the sin, it eventually leads to death. And so James is trying to express here the importance, the second part of the testing of our faith, is the fact that when these temptations come, we need to realize that we need to deal with this early rather than later. Because if we wait till later, it will have a disastrous consequence. And I think so many times that Satan's deceit of Christians is this. He doesn't tell us not to deal with the temptation or not to deal with the appetites that we have. He just tells us, don't do it today. You can always do it later. You can always do it down the road. Just, just don't do it today. And I've, I've mentioned so often before, a few times before, uh, the illustration of doing a, a flower bed years ago in my house in Florida. And how um, it, I came home one day and there was a, a sprout of a dollar weed. Brother Rich might know what dollar weed is down here in South Florida. A uh, little sprout of a dollar weed up there. And then a few more days later, there's four or five more of them coming up through the mulch. And I kept saying, well, when I get out there Saturday, I'll, I'll deal with that. And it was hot, and I'd got done mowing and weed eating. I just didn't feel like getting in there and pulling them out. And in just a few weeks, it had overgrown my, my flower bed. By the time I went to pull them out, it, it, these dollar weeds, they shoot runners uh, under the mulch. And by the time I went to pull it out, it uprooted so much of my flower bed, we just had to basically pull it all out and start all over again. And the problem is it became a much greater problem because I didn't deal with it early. And I, I use that illustration so often that in the Christian life, when, when temptation comes our way, it needs to be dealt with immediately. The Bible says that He is faithful and just, or that he is, He's made a way of escape in every aspect of time, that God has made a way of escape for us in the way of temptation. And, and the moment that, that temptation comes, we need to start dealing with it. We need to start saying, I, I don't want to succumb to that. I don't want to linger my thoughts on that, the what-ifs. Uh, we're living in a world today where our eye gate and our ear gate is bombarded with evil in our world all the time. And the, the, the temptation is there. And I would say this, that what we do with that temptation oftentimes determines whether it becomes sin in our life or not. Do we deal with it? Do we avert our eyes from it? Do we start quoting Scripture? Do we start saying, Lord, help me not to, uh, to, to go down that road? The psalmist said that he had made a covenant with his eyes uh, that he would set no evil thing before his eyes. Uh, it talks about Lot, who was a just man, had vexed his righteous soul by seeing and hearing the sin of Sodom every day, from day to day, and how it had vexed his righteous soul. Why? Because he didn't deal with it early on. It started with him pitching his tent toward Sodom. Later on, he moves into Sodom. And you all know the story how that it eventually took his family from him. Why? Because he didn't deal with it soon enough. And so James talks about the progression here. The temptation that is there because of the lust of our flesh. And if we don't deal with it, it leads to sin. And if we don't deal with that, it leads to death. And he's trying to teach these... He's writing here... Keep in mind, he's writing to Christians... And he's trying to show them that, listen, y'all are going through some things right now. You're going to have some temptations to turn from your faith. 
you're under a great deal of persecution, it would be very easy for people to say, I don't want to have to endure this anymore. I'm just turning from my faith. He's encouraging him. He's saying, listen, when that temptation comes, you deal with it. You deal with it quickly. So the testing of the faith. Uh, he deals with in chapter 1, verses 1, all the way down through uh, verse number uh, 18. Then he deals with the second section, which is the vast majority of the book. We're not going to take as much time on it. But he deals with the characteristics of faith. He said basically there's three things that we need to do. Look with me in verse number 19 of chapter 1. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, verse number 19. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. These three things are key to the next four chapters. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. So he starts off uh, in, this, in this section uh, dealing with the fact that genuine faith um, in response to the testing that comes our way uh, is to be dealt with by obedience and submission to God's Word. He does this as we read down through verse number 27. You'll see that he talks about this in verse number 21, or verse number 20, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Uh, this, is, this is dealing here with being swift to hear, to give ear to God's word, to be submissive to God's Word, to be obedient to God's Word. In verse number 23, he begins to illustrate this. He says, For if any be a hearer of the Word, and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in the glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deeds. So he illustrates it as a man who looks in... His natural face, he looks at the reflection of it in a glass. He sees what manner of man he was, and he doesn't do anything about it. He just goes on goes on through his day. When I get up in the morning, because of the way my uh, follically challenged head is, uh, I get I get pillow hair on the sides. And I don't know if you remember years ago, there was a clown on TV for kids' programs called Bozo the Clown. You know what I'm talking about? I had the, this big hair that sticks up like horns on the sides. I go in the mirror, and most mornings, that's the way my hair is. It, it sticks up here. Not here, but here. And I look at the mirror, and I look at that, and I, I wet it down. I try to get it to, to lay down and everything. It would be crazy of me to see that and to turn around and walk out of that, that, that bathroom mirror and not do anything about it. My kids, in fact, sometimes will be embarrassed. I, the other day, I got up and had washed my hair, and I didn't take time to look in the mirror. And I guess my hair had dried on one side, sticking up. And we went to a restaurant. We walk in, and as I'm going through the front door, I see my reflection in the glass of the front door. My hair is sticking up on one side. And my kids were making fun of me and giving me a hard time about that. And James says, listen, a person that will come to this book and see what manner of man he is and then not do anything about it? He said he's like a man who beholds his natural face in a glass and doesn't see anything and goes about his business. And so he talks about the fact that we need to uh, have... He illustrates this idea of this true faith uh, being submissive, swift to hear, being submissive to the Word of God, to be hearing the Word of God and to yield ourselves to its truth. 
To not just look at it and go about our way, but to look at it and do something about it. And then he, uh, beyond the illustration, now he applies it in verse number 26. Now he makes this full application. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. So after he gives an illustration of it, he, he now makes application of it. A person that will do this, and bridle not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion, undefiled before God and the Father, is to visit the fatherless, widows and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. You know what we like to quote oftentimes? Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. We love to quote that. But there's more to the verse. What is true religion? What is pure religion and undefiled before God? To visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself what? Unspotted. From the world. So we're to look into this perfect law of liberty, see what manner of men we are, and then do something about it. This is where verse number 17 is so vitally important, or verse number 19, I think, is, is verse so important that we be swift to hear. Swift to hear. Slow to speak and slow to wrath. And so he starts off making these three points in this middle section of the book about being swift to hear. Genuine faith should also produce a change in our attitude. And he talks about the fact in chapter one or chapter two, verses one to thirteen, and we're going to deal with this. I'm going to have to come back and do some more of this next week because we're only halfway through the notes, but I'll quickly give you just the rough sketch of the outline. He talks about the fact that our attitude, genuine faith ought to change our attitude. Whereas before we may have had partiality to people that were rich and we didn't really have time for people that were poor and needy. By the way, lest we think that we don't have a problem with that, uh, think about how quickly we are receptive to people who have means and how dismissive we are of people who are in need. It happens even in our day. It happens even in the hearts of many that sit in the pews of our churches. And so he talks about the fact that this attitude should be changed, that there should not be a respecter of persons. You shouldn't have a respect for somebody that's wealthy and then have disdain for somebody who's poor. But now that you ought to, you ought to have a love for those that are poor. So he, he starts to talk about this application uh, of not only being swift to hear, but being slow to speak. And uh, he says here that, uh, in verse uh, 14 through 26 of chapter 2 that genuine faith should result in actions. In actions. Now, we're going to talk about this a little bit more next week, but I'm just going to give you real quickly the, the nutshell version of it here. In Romans chapter number 4, it's very, very clear, Paul deals with this, that we are justified by faith and not by works. As we come to James chapter 2, James talks about the fact, and in fact, let's take a minute to look at it in verse number 14 of chapter 2. We're going to read down a few verses here. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. 
Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Well, that's an interesting question. Because Paul in Romans chapter 4 actually uses Abraham as the illustration of not being saved by works, but being saved by faith. Now we got a problem, don't we? Is our King James Bible in conflict? <laughs> no. Because Paul, when he deals with Romans 4, is dealing with the justification of the soul before God. In James chapter 2, he is dealing with the justification of our testimony before men. Big difference. Big difference. Nowhere is James speaking of the fact that for justification of our sins that we have to do works. He speaks of the fact, again, who's he writing to? The Hebrew what? Believers. Christians. They're already saved. So he's dealing with the fact that their faith is made alive, their faith is expressed by works. So James is not saying you have to do works in order to be justified to be saved. He's saying you need to do works now that you are saved, because you're living in a world. And people are looking at your life. And again, the Sermon on the Mount becomes very, very prominent in his teaching here that we are the salt of the earth, that we are the light of the world, that we are the city that is set on a hill. And when he talks about the fact that Abraham was justified by faith, he was in the eyes of men. But when it came to his justification of his sin before God, it was by faith and faith alone. So keep that in mind. Don't get tripped up on that. People will throw this out at you if you're not careful and say, there's a contradiction in Scripture here. Don't let it trip you up. It's not, it is not a hard thing to come across. All right? The, the gospel is simple. Uh, we're out of time, and I've still got a page and a half of notes, so we're going to take some time next week. I hope it's been a help to you. I love the book of James. It's, not, it's one of those books that sometimes people are afraid of because they're afraid it's going to mess their doctrine up or make them question some things. It's a wonderful book. And uh, it certainly teaches us an awful lot. So let's stand. We'll be dismissed. And uh, we'll pick up there next week and finish it out. All right? Let's pray together.